workforce and workplace norms are shaped as much by popularized portrayals as they are by our lived experiences. From sensational headlines, like The Great Resignation, to successful series, like The Office and Silicon Valley, to skits and stories shared on our social media feeds, what we see shapes what we believe. Let's go behind the scenes to discover what's new now and next in the world of work, and we'll challenge the traditions of what it means to live well and to work well. This is Success From Anywhere. Today on Success From Anywhere, we'll meet an award-winning entrepreneur, catalyst, and author whose transformational impact on the workplace resulted in being knighted in her native France. Please join me in welcoming to the show author of Dare to Unlead, The Art of Relationship Leadership in a Fragmented World, the one woman who truly knows whether or not the pen is mightier than the sword, Celine Schillinger. Welcome to the show, Celine. Thank you, Karen. I'm so excited to be here. Everyone listening wants to know, how do you get knighted and what was the experience <laughs> like? It was amazing. So I'm not riding a horse, you know, with a, it's not that kind of knighthood. Um, so it, was, it happened a, a few years ago uh, when I was still living in the U.S. It was in Boston. And I was knighted uh, upon the recommendation of the French Ministry of uh, Foreign Affairs for my involvement in uh, diversity in the workplace. So I've been, I had been an activist for diversity in the workplace for quite some time already. And I guess this had been uh, noticed and um, it was completely unexpected. I had, you know, it, I really discovered that by chance and it was amazing it was such an honor and i celebrated with my friends and family in boston it was uh, amazing <laughs> did you get a sword a sash a tiara no. i mean just a trophy how does that work i got i got i got a medal a, a beautiful medal i think it's uh sitting not not far away from me it's blue and um quite big that's it oh wow yeah that's fantastic <laughs> Well, because we are talking about the world of work, I like to ask each guest, what was your first paid nine to five job and how did that job influence your career trajectory? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, so my first nine to five job was um, in France in a small startup um, in a tech company working mostly with Chinese um, clients and led mostly by people of Vietnamese origin. So something a little bit unusual. Uh, one of the founders had been, um, is considered as one of the, the inventors of the first ever, um, one of the first ever microcomputers. Its name was the, the Micral, Micral, I think it's the, at the Museum of Computers. And, um, and I was in, um, what it really led, um, I didn't stay that much, that long in that company because it was very small and fragile and it actually closed down about a year and a half after I joined. But it got me the, or it added to my Asia bug. I was passionate about Asia for, through literature and 
and the arts and cinema and working with Asian customers at that time really reinforced that um, appetite and I ended up leaving France and moving to Vietnam, setting, settling down uh, in Vietnam in a Vietnamese family, learning the language and spending four beautiful years there, finding a job. And that led me to other jobs in relation to Asia. I later on settled in China to lead um, the radio business of a French media company. So overall, that, that first job uh, was the entry door to uh, 10 beautiful years in Asia with Asian customers. I uh, went to Japan also quite a bit and, and other countries. And uh, it's still very, very deep in my heart. I've considered uh, Vietnam as my second country almost. I used to speak the language pretty well at that time. It's now long forgotten, unfortunately, but I still have friends and I've been very marked by uh, the culture and uh, the aesthetics and, and the food. <laughs> many, many things. <laughs> You're leading this diverse perspective of work from having lived it, which is a little I, bit unusual, right? I mean, you've already told us this few minutes into the conversation about living in France and the United States and Vietnam and yeah. traveling everywhere. And that makes me wonder, I mean, given the cultural context in which you've operated, mm -hmm. what opportunities do you believe the COVID pandemic opened uh, up for us to reinvent nine to five globally, not just in a specific country? Yes, I mean, this is the question of our times, right? And between the pandemic and what I just told you, this extreme diversity of experience, I joined a large pharmaceutical company in Europe and discovered the super traditional nine to five and um, and found it found good aspects in it. There, there were things I really loved in it and things I resented <laughs> very deeply. Um, and the pandemic has shaken all that uh, completely for, for all of us. I was already out of that uh, company. I had already settled my own business at that time. So I, I was already uh, working on my own, working with, you know, from my, from my house and using, you know, all sorts of digital networks. So it was not um, a complete shock for me. I was not you know, uh, pushed away from a, a collective of colleagues, you know, from one day to another, like what happened to many, many people. But I could see uh, the, 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 the amount of change was considered as a, almost as a revolution uh, as compared to what we did. And I feel that the pandemic has brought um, to light some uh, frustrations and even aberrations that were already here, but that were uh, sort of um, in a muted state, you know, like we were like the, the frog that has been put in cold water and, and heated uh, progressively. And so we had not, I think we were not all aware of the uh, aberrations of our operating mode. And yet there were plenty of warning signs, like uh, the number of burnouts, the, the burnout epidemics, uh, or the um, employee disengagement, for example. So there, there were already, you know, warning signs, but it was, uh, uh, I think, awareness was not generalized. And the COVID, the pandemic has forced us to take a distance from those classical operating modes and to, to, to see, to see how we were working and 
the waste of energy, the waste of uh, the waste of time, the waste of even wasting people, the waste of human creativity, you know, in the traditional uh, nine to five. So I think it was, um, yes, it's a shock. Uh, it's still, people are still mourning, I, I guess. Uh, many of them are still mourning the nine to five. There were things we loved there, right? The, the camaraderie, the sort of the work bubble, uh, which is great for focus or the change of scenery or but there's there were also things that um, were completely toxic and now so now is a really great time to distance ourselves and um, reinvent or invent new ways to work together as a as a collective so the, the opportunities i think are precisely uh, related to reinventing a form of collective performance that fits our human aspirations in the 21st century and that fit also the economic, uh, environmental conditions of our century. When you were working in that very traditional, as you called it, nine to five at the pharmaceutical company, you were inspired to become an employee activist how do you define that and what inspired you to start a movement? I mean, take us inside of how you rose up inside of that traditional environment to lead change. Hmm. Uh, to be really honest, I was an accidental activist. <laughs> I didn't think about it uh, in the beginning. It didn't happen like that. You know, I, I was I just got progressively and possibly because of that um, love for diversity in the first place and that extreme, you know, uh, those first 10 years spent in an extremely diverse and entrepreneurial and fast-moving kind of world, progressively, I think I became like suffocated uh, by the, uh, the, the lack, precisely, the lack of diversity in my workplace, which was great in, in many aspects, but, but extremely dull and uniform and... and um, it was just, uh, I mean, there was a single model of guys, <laughs> basically, at, at all echelons of, of power, and that was all. And beside that model, there were uh, no, no, no hope for anybody else, you know, not fitting in the mold. So at some point, I realized it was not just an individual issue, a personal issue, or an issue related to, I don't know, a lack of opportunities for myself or some of my colleagues, but it was a systemic issue. And this systemic issue was actually detrimental to the business because I, that's also something I could feel intuitively uh, is that in our modern economies, what counts is not so much the, the quality of your product or your service. It is the, the connection, the link, the, the, yeah, the connection you, are, you can establish or not with your customer base uh, or your, press, your, your ecosystem in general, even your suppliers, etc. And this, this connections, these connections are possible if you include in, your, in, in the corporate brain, you know, in the decision-making um, bodies, people who look like, who feel like, who have the same experience as your customers or your suppliers or etc. So it's this diversity is not just a nice to have, you know, good looking for corporate, uh, you know, booklets uh, kind of um, kind of aspects. It is critical for the business itself. And that realization came to me in around 2010. And um, 
And then I wrote a letter to the CEO of the company to advocate for diversity for the sake of our business. And this letter became viral. And it was um, not because the CEO sent it, but because I had sent it myself to three colleagues of mine. And um, and they forwarded it to, and that it became viral. And uh, that was the beginning of a movement where we decided together without being prompted by anybody, without, you know, no, 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 no leader, it, it came from us. And we decided that we would contribute to the organization. We would not fight against, we would fight for. Huh? And that, that was a very, very different mindset right from the start. And, and, um, and so it was fueled with positive energy, with, you know, people um, going across hierarchical barriers, functional barriers, people who did not know each other before, but felt they were united by this, uh, this purpose, this common purpose. Men and women, because very early on, we realized uh, we, we should be as diverse as what we preached, <laughs> right, uh, ourselves. So it was not about building a new silo, like a women's group, for example. It was about enabling this diversity we were aspiring to. We thought, you know, maybe we have a part of the solution. Maybe it will not come from, by magic, from somebody else, a senior leader, a CEO, etc. And that was for me a, a, a really a revelation. The, the, the power of, of self-empowerment, of connection, of digital networks, because we used that. I mean, that was um, a, a, a super important enabler of our movement, the use of uh, enterprise social networks. And all that was around 2011. So and still very early for the kind of company I, I was at, which was absolutely not used to that uh, type of uh, of groups, of movements. And at the beginning, we were watched with suspicion. Even the unions, you know, looked at us with suspicion, said, mm, what are you doing? Who are you? Who's the boss? And we said, well, there's no boss. We're a network. We're a community. All those new words, you know, uh, coming in the in the landscape. And it became a pretty big group, 3,000 people uh, that... that over 50 countries that grew beyond the boundaries of the company even and formed a network of networks and has now, so it's been a long time now, and it it's, has now become an official advisor or advisory group to the French Ministry of Industry. Um, and it has gotten uh, lots and lots of awards. And um, so it's, uh, but for me, what was really uh, fascinating in this experience was what I discovered as a as a human being in this activism experience, how I was able to connect, you know, very deeply with other people, uh, and this trust we built um, because we wanted it. We we, we created something. We self-organized. I mean, there, there was so much uh, learning in, in that involved and connecting with the outside world, with uh, other, you know, through discovering Twitter and all those uh, those things and connecting with thought leaders. Uh, it's been a, a huge, huge um, trans transformative moment for, for me and many others. What you're sharing with us and teaching us right now is powerful wisdom. We have all looked around our workplace you know where yeah. we are employed 
and have seen some kind of condition we mm. felt did not serve us or the people around us. Yes. And what you're sharing is you didn't just wake up in the morning on a Tuesday and say, I think I'll become an employee activist no. today. You <laughs> thought, I see something that isn't working for me. It's mm. not working for the people around me. Yeah. What am I going to do about it? And exactly. then you anchored it to business benefit. Exactly. I loved what you said about, you know, fighting with and for exactly. the business rather than against it. You know, how do you illustrate the business benefit mm. and then build a network of networks? Exactly. I exactly. really appreciate what you said there about not trying to create a silo. This isn't about a mm. rebel movement. This is there is something to gain. And yes, there were the naysayers and the laggards and the people who were suspicious yes. about your motive. Over time, it proved out to be a powerful yeah. uniting force and you didn't wait for permission. That was the other nope. message that stood out to me yeah. from what you were sharing, which was you were the hero you wanted to see <laughs> and you weren't waiting for permission for someone else to say, you know, Celine, could you be in charge of diversifying mm. our business? Exactly. And you see how, how these kind of initiatives have sometimes been digested by companies into employee resource groups which are super interesting and and super important but who tend to create new silos mm -hmm. you're either in the women erg or in the you know um, whatever other ergs and um, because an organization tends to reproduce what it knows mm -hmm. and and applying apply it to the newness to what's new what's new is being digested into a structure with a, a hierarchy a lead uh, some reporting work some whatever you know and um, by doing so an organization limits its capacities for for change, unfortunately. Uh, so at that time, there were no such things as employee resource groups, and we were more like um, probably, um, how can I say, li triggering more change than what you know um, employee resource group members might be able to do now. Maybe not, but maybe, uh, well, that's what I suspect. And about your, uh, this connection to business, yes, that is the critical point, probably. Uh, in addition to, you know, the, the energy that is dormant and that can be uh, revived or, or that, that can be expressed, yes, by connecting it to, but the, this connection to business is, is key. And as long as I was involved in, a diversity movement unfortunately it did not appear as a business um, a critical topic we you and i know it is <laughs> but for some of the uh, you know old fashioned uh, a bit maybe senior executives it isn't uh, we have to face the truth huh? it's uh, it doesn't look like it is an important topic it looks like more of a, an identity you know kind of topic it's not but anyway so i uh, i was determined to show the business value of this kind of approach and so i advocated very seriously, I built a, a, a business plan. I, I documented myself. I pulled together lots of sources, etc., uh, and managed after a while. It took six months to create a position connected to marketing, the marketing department. And this position was called 
stakeholder engagement. It was the first ever position called as such at within this whole big company, 100,000 people. And that was in 2012, stakeholder engagement. It was the very beginning of stakeholder marketing, um, even in the field of research. And, but I know it was promising. I know this was, you know, where in, in the world of networks and ecosystems, etc. And so I managed to create um, from that position an initiative aimed, uh, aimed at supporting the launch of a new product by connecting a worldwide community of um, stakeholders. Um, diversity of stakeholders because diversity is key in those initiatives and I managed to using such social networks using the power of purpose using the power of diversity by connecting with different with different partners beyond the field of healthcare where I was operating I managed to create this community of 250,000 people in less than a year it got uh, many awards as well it got the attention of the uh, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. It became a case study for e-health by the World Health Organization. And, and I, was, I was proud and happy about that. I had, I think, well, in my opinion, I had proven the point. But in the company, some people still disagreed because they were uh, pretty... Uh, uh, afraid or, or yeah, a bit scared and challenged. They were challenged by this way of operating in a network, opening up to dialogue with stakeholders from all over the world, Inst rather than you know channeling content or channeling you know messages to people, which is the comfortable, classical, controlled kind of way. I think this is old-fashioned this doesn't work anymore with uh, clients with you know we resent authority we resent we resent being talked to we resent we we, we challenge uh, experts um, even knowledge even science and companies need to adapt to that we need to find new ways so that was the second um, my second experiment and that led me to a third which is why I moved to Boston, to the U.S., where I led the transformation of, uh, of, the, of our whole uh, quality, um, not the quality department, but the transformation of how people work together in order to produce better quality products. So that was a big global project involving uh, close to 10,000 people worldwide across very, very different cultures. And again, I applied this very same approach, activism, networking, diversity, um, inviting people to co-create, uh, etc. And guess what? It worked again. <laughs> it was quite amazing. Did you know that 68% of workers say a hybrid workplace is their preference? Make hybrid work for everyone with Robin. Robin is the industry-leading flexible workplace platform for connecting people with rooms, desks, and each other. We've helped companies like Peloton, Toyota, and Hulu build better workplace experiences. Plus, we integrate with the tools you already know and love. To learn more about how we make flexible work a reality, visit www.robinpowered.com. You also, in addition to the activism and network of networks, you used a word a moment ago that I think is critical, which is 
patterns. I mean, mm -hmm. what you're describing is you created a pattern interrupt mm -hmm. in the way things have always been done. Yes. And that reminds me of a conversation we had in our Authority Magazine interview, yeah. and you said people resent, to use that word from a moment ago, people resent a poor work experience or they learn to conform and reproduce on others the patterns of domination they experience. What is it going to take to break this cycle and move organizations and employees within them from what I call organizations of blending to organizations of belonging. Oh, that's a great uh, wording. That's a great, great way to, to put it. I think it will take um, the um, awareness, a greater awareness to new possibilities or other possibilities. And by doing this podcast, you're contributing exactly to this you're showing you're you're making it possible for people to see other ways there are other ways we always have more power than we think we don't have to follow execute all orders or even what we believe is expected from us we have the possibility to take risks sometimes i did take risks uh, so i know i was able to take them well, first, I'm, I'm an optimist, so sometimes I underestimate the risks. That's, I'm aware of that. But, I, and, but I'll, I also realize that I speak from a position of privilege. I'm, I'm able-bodied, I'm, um, I'm healthy, I'm, I'm a white woman, I'm you know, uh, not struggling with life, really. So I am able, but I also have, this also gives me a responsibility hmm, to uh, push the needle a little bit. Uh, if I don't do it, then who will? <laughs> uh, I, and not to say that I will save the world. On the contrary, because um, that, that's the danger uh, a little bit that looms for change agents. Sometimes, and I have certainly fallen in that trap myself before, sometimes change agents want to save the world or change or change or save others. The problem with that is that they, uh, in doing so, they only reproduce the current system where we put some people in charge and everybody else waits for uh, the savior to save them, <laughs> right? So we don't develop our agency, our, our, our you know, self-motivation, our self, you know, our awareness of our own strength. And um, this is comfortable for those who use that passivity. Uh, for and, and there's a lot of interest in keeping us in the back seat, or keeping us, you know, as a, as an audience, as a passive audience of consumers. You know, this consumerism is is I suppose interesting for for business. But there's other ways. There are other ways, and those other ways are more fulfilling for us as human beings, for us as collectives of, of humans in the workplace and in society in general. I think being this passivity that is um, entrenched and um, uh, this desire to, or the, the, will, the, the belief that organizations will be more efficient if people just obey and march. You know, this belief is, is leading us to catastrophe, to disasters, you know, and for to solve global warming, to solve 
um, the crisis of democracies, etc., will need the energy, the creativity, and the, the involvement of everybody, not just a few saviors. Your new book, in fact, is an invitation to dare to unlead. What does yes. it mean to unlead? And maybe what do we need to unlearn to unlead? Tell us yes. more. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. I think we need to probably unlearn the traditional understanding or classical understanding of what leadership is. We all, if, you, if, you, if I say the word leader, I will, even myself, you know, imagine this um, sort of um, exceptional person, um, probably somebody who's quite assertive and certain of, of his or her uh, abilities and who who's uh, a bit superior to to us all you know somebody who's um, who's standing above and who has followers okay leader and followers that's the traditional yeah exactly that's the traditional understanding of what a leader is and um, and I believe this has I mean it's probably deep rooted in human psyche and it's time to let go of that and realize that perpetuating this pattern will only lead us to destruction. Instead, what we need to do is consider leadership as a collective capacity. Leadership is collective or is not. And if we are not able to develop this collective leadership, then there's no leaders. Uh, there's, there's only um, autocrats. <laughs> and uh, and so it's a collective capacity, in my opinion, and therefore it relies on relational capacity, capacity from a technological standpoint. So using all sort of uh, connection technologies, but connection skills as well, connection abilities So nurturing those skills, developing them um, as much as possible. This is. Uh, you know, connection skills are the, the, the new engineering skills, right? And uh, developing that, developing the social capital, nurturing the social capital of an organization, big or small, doesn't matter, at any scale, is critical. And for that, it requires people, individuals, especially people in position of power, to make the effort to sort of disappear in the collective rather than stand above it. And that's not easy <laughs> because mm, then we need to... someone listening right now is yeah. saying, you know, the naysayers <laughs> are going to say, well, first of all, you know, we're a business that makes a profit. Yeah. So something yeah. has to get done and somebody has yes. to be in charge. What would you say to that naysayer or, or perhaps many of them? That I, would, I would say currently your model relies on too few shoulders. You're putting too much work on too few shoulders. Mm. You have much more potential, much more capability than you, than you think and then you leverage. You can actually do much more, faster, better, etc. More innovation, etc. Instead of having you know, a few leaders drag the whole, the whole team, the whole organization, the rest of and you know how it goes. Leaders complain about people below them being too passive and, uh, and people below them complain about leaders not listening, being detached from reality. So the, the blame game is probably uh, the most played game in, in organizations. And then, you know, R&D will complain about marketing, marketing will complain about production. 
etc etc and it goes on and instead what I suggest, and I've seen it in practice, that's why it's not just, you know, concepts, ideas, you know, or ideals. It comes from doing it on the field. It's because I've seen it work that I, I now try to offer those those pathway, pathways to other people uh, through this book. It is in practice what works better. One of the examples I bring forward in the book is this transformation of, of quality, where we were able, thanks to the involvement of thousands of people, to solve problems that had not been solved for 15 years, despite millions invested, millions of dollars, despite tons of uh, consultants, experts, etc. But all this investment, this money and, 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 and brain power, had not changed the patterns of relationships. It, it, they were they, they always always had um, maintained this pattern where knowledge, expertise is supposed to come from the top and 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 drip down, you know, onto cascade down onto people, and it's based on the fantasy that people will adopt, execute, and change because they are told they are mm. told to. It never happens this way. This is a complete uh, nonsense. <laughs> yes, I say people are looking for meaning rather than mandates. Exactly. And, and when you tell a toddler what to do or a trained professional what to do, the same force rises up yes. inside and comes out as you can't make me. Exactly. Right. It, it sparks yes. this force of resistance. Yes. And you know, you, you talk about the importance of relational leadership. What does that mean? Or what should we be screening mm. leaders for now? I mean, if we're writing the job description yeah. for the most effective leader of our time, mm. what characteristics and attributes or even yes. experience would we be seeking mm. to put this relational leader, this unlead leader in place? Yes. Well, it's a, it's a hard question because power changes people. So you take the best person, you know, it, it, we're not perfect, but imagine there's a perfect person and you put him or her at the top of a large organization. This person will be changed by power. So it is um, rather than uh, seeking pro profiles or specific profiles, I would pay attention to the conditions in which those people are expected to operate or what they are, ex how they're expected to relate with others. Of course, you can identify big egos and, uh, you know, sort of <laughs> um, refrain from choosing them. Um, but it, but it's hard again because this um, you know assertiveness and confidence projects uh, uh, it plays with what we have deep inside us as the image of the perfect leader. So it, it takes us, you know, hiring people, but but even all of us, you know, voters, <laughs> to deconstruct maybe what we expect from leaders. But in addition, and to respond maybe more directly to your question. Why don't you? Why don't we look at uh, how those people um, connect on social media, for example? Do they, or, or don't they? 
and if they don't why you know uh, i think nowadays it should be you know at least having a, a linkedin you know profile and, and interacting with other people should be the very minimum um how do they relate to people below them in the hierarchy do they pay attention or do they pay attention to the the next level only or or are they are they still kind of stuck in this pyramid hierarchical mode which is not very uh, which is obsolete and not very not full of, of opportunities unfortunately or are they in a networked kind of approach what are their networks and what are the communities they belong to do they feel they are part of it how do they contribute to communities Mm, that would be interesting, you know. In um, in order to uh, pick uh, some of the volunteers, we invited to co-lead the some of the projects I'm talking about, especially the quality and the quality one and some uh, others I did at clients. We invite people to we uh, actually select people on the basis of anonymized applications. And this is great because you're not influenced by who they are, you know, where they live, how they look like, but you're, you're paying attention to their answers to questions such as what is leadership for you? Um, are you, do you get involved in collective projects? Which ones, what do they bring you? What do you bring to them? Et cetera, et cetera. These kind of questions I think are, are extremely important for even to select leaders and uh, should be at the center of our of our leader selection of our leader hiring process really i think that would work the new leadership screening questions those yes. are fantastic and you used a word in there i want to come back to which is community and mm. the same authority magazine series that brought you and i together i interviewed almost 800 leaders about this topic of reworking work and what struck me after all those conversations is that we've reached an inflection point of companies as command and control entities to mm -hmm. companies as communities that's mm -hmm. what employees are really saying they want my company mm -hmm. to be a community a place where i feel a sense of identity belonging purpose mm -hmm. trust contribution how do organizations create community leaders, you know, inside yes. of the organization? Because for some organizations listening, that's a very new concept. Yes, it's a very new concept, absolutely. And some organizations believe that uh, since they are an organization, so since they, they have a boundary, then that's, uh, they are naturally a community. They're already a community. But it's wrong. Uh, they, they are an organization. They are a structure, but they are not a community. A community uh, is, um, is a process. A community is not a geography. It's not a territory. It's a process. It's an experience. Um, and it relies on um, the, the integration of diversity, uh, the, uh, the experience of, um, of uh, commonality, the um, integration of uh, diverse perspectives, the, the open invitation to anyone, because an, an, a community is not a, an elitist group. That's a, if you if you imagine having a you know a, a kind of a, 
leadership and some people better than others, etc. You just reproduce the old system. As I said about, you know, activist networks being transformed into ERGs, it's a little bit the same. Um, so a community takes efforts from leaders to step down as the sole uh, um, how can I say leaders again, or the, the sole people who will direct the group. So it takes them to share power, to invite, to be open, to have their minds changed by the very those very people. That's what community is about. And it takes, in my, my opinion, a very strong um, magnet or glue. What keeps the community together is this activist purpose. So constantly making sense together of what the world is, what we need to do and, and why. Why? Um, and not taking a why, you know, for as um, something that's now written on the wall and that we we won't change and we will we'll live the next 15 years with that why established by our board. <laughs> this is uh, this is wrong. This is the old world in practice. We, so we need a much more conversational um, activist and open um, type of um, of engagement with people. But of course, again, as, as I, we said before, it takes new behaviors um, from leaders and from everyone, any one of us. Huh? It's not just leaders making efforts. It's also, you know, some, some people are very comfortable in waiting for instructions and just, you know, nothing more. And now we're inviting them to step in and co-create. So it takes efforts and learning and new skills from, from everybody. Communities and co-creation. I love it. And our listeners are a community and they would like to get to know you a little bit better. I think about this as our virtual water cooler segment, you know, the place of spontaneous conversation. So I've got five quick and easy questions for you. Just say the first thing that comes to mind. Are are you ready to join our virtual water cooler here? I am. I am. Love that. (laughs) What time of day do you do your best work? Oh, at night, for sure, for sure. Um, after dinner, when everybody's, you know, my kids, my husband are in bed or doing their own stuff, and I can do like 9 p.m. to 1 a.m., no problem. I got good music. I've got my, you know, warm tea, my nice light. And uh, I love that time of the day, of the night. <laughs> I share that with you. I'm also oh, a yeah. night owl. Oh, yes, <laughs> yes, for sure. If you, If there were no dress code, what would you wear to work? Uh, Flip flops. <laughs> <laughs> a night owl and a beach bum. You and I are like soul sisters. Although I, I can't, I can't speak in the Vietnamese language. So, <laughs> what is the part of your daily routine that you most look forward to each day? Uh, I look forward to drinking my first tea in the morning. I, I drink enormous amount of tea uh, every day, and uh, it's uh, always green tea, but uh, different sorts of green tea. And I, I love the first one. It, it's really, really good. <laughs> Something special about yes. that moment, right? If you could do any job in the world, what would you do? Oh, I would, um, I would read. I would read the whole day long. That's not really a job. That's an occupation. I don't know if I could be ever paid for reading, but uh, I would just, uh, yeah, read, 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 read. 
<laughs> Maybe you be par- become a part of Goodreads, right? Yes. The reading yes. community, you're going to read the yeah. books and review them. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Imagine a situation where now each day has 25 hours instead of 24. How would you spend that extra hour? Well, then I would read an hour per day, which I'm not <laughs> doing now. <laughs> I love it. I would I make sure it. to save that precious additional hour for sure. <laughs> Before we close, where can our listeners connect with you? Uh, they can connect with me on LinkedIn, on Twitter, on Instagram. Um, basically, the, on my website, obviously, we need social.com. And I, I'm always here for a, a chat, always, a, you know, I'm curious about people. So if anyone's curious about me, well, welcome. Let's, let's chat. And what is the one unlead behavior that you believe would forever shift work for the better? Uh, it's questioning our own contribution to maintaining or changing systems. What do I do? that keeps the system in place or changes it. Well, thank you to Celine Sillinger, CEO of We Need Social and author of Dare to Unlead for conferring strategies to move from command and control companies to companies as communities today on success from anywhere because success is not a destination or a location. Success is available to anyone, anytime, anywhere. Oh, 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 oh,